0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Good morning, church. Great to see you guys. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're in chapter 1 last week, chapter 3. This week, we're going to be looking at our second study in this wholehearted work series that we're in before we get into the book of Habakkuk. Um, but before we have our reading this morning, I wanted to give just a little bit of an announcement about something that we're doing connected to this wholehearted work series. And that will happen on Wednesday night, uh, May 25th. We're going to have a wholehearted work meetup for those of you who are working in different industries throughout the community. And what we want to do is provide you an opportunity to meet other members of the church who are working in your similar career field. So some of you are part of career fields where there's lots of other people that are involved in them. So perhaps education or The medical field or the hospitality field. We're going to have a little golf uh, track for those who are golf professionals and want to come meet others who are believers in Christ. And so uh, that'll be on May 25th. And if you're curious if your line of work is going to be represented or not, and if you'd like to get more information about it or sign up, you could just go to calvary.com slash events. Uh, These are days where we really need each other. There's going to be times where you need wisdom and insight, where uh, those above you in your workplace hand down, um, you know, either legislation or rules or guidance that you're going to need wisdom from other Christians. How are you going to navigate this? And how how are we going to do this? And can we be praying together for each other? So I'd encourage you to uh, check out that night. Calvary.com slash events is where you can get more info about that. All right, our scripture reading this morning is going to be given by Natalie Reed. If you guys would welcome Natalie to the stage this morning. It's fun to say Natalie Reed. She's a newlywed. Um, And uh, Natalie, it's great to have her reading the scripture because uh, here we are in our Wholehearted work series. She's a self-employed business owner. She's a hairstylist, and so she's got a do that hustle and get clients and arrange things for herself. And uh, she's very industrious and has done really well for herself here. So it's an honor to have you, you read the scripture for us today. So Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. First, Father, we want to pray together for Natalie and ask, Lord, that you bless her new marriage to Daniel, and, uh, Lord, that you'd really protect them, guide them in these formative first years of being a married couple together. And, Lord, we do pray for her business, Lord, the work of her hands, that you give her wisdom and discernment, Lord, the boundaries that she needs to create. Uh, We pray for all of that, Lord, to come into her life. But also, Lord, I know that she has a huge heart to share the gospel with the people in her chair. And so, Lord, I pray that you would steadily, faithfully, over time, open those doors for every single person, Lord, that she cares for in this way. So, Lord, bless her work and the work of her hands. We pray for every self-employed person in the church and ask, Lord, that you give them wisdom and insight and real trust in you, Lord, during those seasons where it's fearful, scary. Uh, So, Lord, We thank you that you are our provider. And we turn to you now, and we ask, Lord, that you teach us today from your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Natalie. Okay, so last week we began this study on wholehearted work, which I think will take us four or five weeks to get through in its entirety. And really what this is is a look at the theology of career and work. So we're kind of putting on our thinking caps a little bit during this series and thinking about theological concepts and the way that they work themselves out in, uh, something that we spend a real significant part of our lives doing, our workplace, our careers, our nine to five. Uh, Last week, we looked at the subject of why work matters. We also could have called that study Why Work is Good. We looked at five things last week. We talked about how work matters because it's God-like or it's godly. When God is presented in the Bible, he's presented as the first worker, the primary worker, and he created work for us to do in the Garden of Eden. So work is good, God is a worker, so work is something that we can do to imitate God. It's godly. We also thought about how work is a way to live out Christ's kingdom, We are citizens, if we're Christians, of another kingdom. We have a secondary citizenship above whatever whatever citizenship we are born into or acquire here in this lifetime. We have a king. He's not visible, but we do have a king. His name is Jesus. And so our work is a great place for us to express his reign over our lives. And we also talked about how work is one of the primary ways that we will love other people. Jesus said to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And through the quality of our work, we can love other people. We can provide for other people. We can provide goods and services for other people. We can love our coworkers because we're carrying our weight, doing our job, not letting them down. There's so many ways we can love others in our place of work. We also talked about how work is a major source of sanctification. When I brought this point up, a lot of you said, oh yeah, amen, I understand that one. It's a place that we get stretched, a place where challenged, a place where hard, difficult conversations have to happen, where we need our patience to grow, so we're sanctified. We become more like Jesus as we work. And then lastly, we thought about how work has eternal significance in our lives, uh, that even a cup of cold water done in the given in the name of Jesus will be remembered eternally so when we do our work in the name of Jesus it has eternal value in the sight of God and i even suggested that we might be working for all of eternity God is a worker uh, god created work in the perfection and glory of the garden of eden in Revelation, it seems that heaven is filled with nations and cultures and societies, and how, if you think about it, can you love others eternally without some effort, without engaging in some work? So much of our love takes or requires something that we do that we're producing for someone else. Now, it'll be stripped of all the pain, all the toil, all the heartache, all the misery, all the agony, all the failure, it'll be perfect and good, but I suggest to you, we just might be working for all of eternity. Now, some of you guys were bummed out by that. You really liked the idea of having your little cloud and a harp and just doing nothing forever. But if you've ever gone on a very long vacation, uh, you've gotten to the point where you're tired of that. And it's time to leave and actually produce or do something uh, with your life. So I'm very thankful that you came back this week, that I didn't offend you too much with the possibility of working in eternity. But the question that we want to ask today is, why is work hard? If work matters, if it's good in the sight of God, why is it difficult? Why do even the most fulfilling careers, why are they filled with disappointment and brokenness? Why does it feel so hard to provide enough? Uh, Even when you live in one of the most affluent places or affluent times in history, why is it so hard to provide? Why is progress and success at work so hard to come by? This passage gives us answers to those questions. I gotta warn you, it's gonna sound really bad for about two-thirds of this teaching, but at the last part, I'm going to bring you to Jesus and how Jesus helps us with our work. Okay, the, the first reason that I want to show you of two that our work is hard is this. Number one, work is hard because of original sin. Work is hard, number one, because of original sin. Last week, we studied a passage, Genesis 1 26 to 28, that was not tainted by sin at all. It was the sixth day of creation. Everything was perfect and pure and wonderful. And in that passage, God is presented as conspiring within himself. He says, let us make man, mankind in other words, in our image and in the image of God, he created them male and female. And he said, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and I want you to have dominion over all things. So humanity was placed in a glorious position in Genesis chapter 1. There's God, there's creation. We're under God, above the created order. We're in this glorious space. The ground that Adam was called to work and till and take care of was not going to fight against him. It was going to work in subservience to the man. But this passage shows us that all that dominion and subjection and authority and glory is now lost. The ground is presented in this passage as being cursed, is actually fighting against the very humanity that it had originally been created to serve. So what happened? What happened that brought that catastrophic event about? Well, in short, sin happened. If you're a Bible student, you know this. You know that God gave Adam and Eve one test of their human heart. He said, you can have unparalleled freedom here in the garden. You can eat anything that you desire, do whatever it is that you want, but there's one thing that you must not do. You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a test for their hearts, and of course we know that it was a test that they failed. Now what the Bible teaches is that that was original sin, and that that original sin from Adam was passed out down to every single one of us throughout human history. So that when we were born, the Bible says we were born in Adam. We were connected to Adam. It was as if when Adam sinned, because we were still in a sense in his body, we all sinned with him. Now, some of us object to that concept. We say, I'd rather stand on my own two feet I'd rather not be spoken for by Adam. But here's the thing, though people have tried to deny that reality, no one yet on the history of the earth has shown otherwise. Every single one of us has been born and then proceeded to sin, Break God's commands. Break God's laws. Break even what is revealed to our very own conscience. The things that we know are right to do, we do not always do. The things that we know are wrong to do, we sometimes enter into. So every one of us is a lawbreaker. And for those of you who are saddened to hear that when we're born, we're born in Adam, that Adam is our first representative. Well, the good news I have for you is this. Because Adam is our first representative, Jesus can be our second representative. He can replace Adam. In other words, because you inherited Adam's unrighteousness, that means the system is set up so that you can inherit Jesus's righteousness. What his act was can become your act. Just as Adam was yours, now Christ can become yours, and he can displace Adam in your life. But because of Adam's original sin, Work, we learn in this passage, immediately became painful. Look again at verse 17. God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is not the way that it was when God made the ground. This is now an overturning of the natural order of God. We were meant for dominion, called by God to fill the earth and subdue it, we were going to create societies that glorified God in every way, and the creation was going to cooperate with us in that beautiful process. But original sin overturned both our ambitions, made them tainted, and creation's cooperation with our ambitions. So now you could say that in a sense, work is a war, There's a battle, there's a struggle, there's a toil. God calls it a pain. He said in verse 19 that we will only eat by the sweat of our brow. No longer do we have the easy dominion that Adam had in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. Now the ground subjects us to a painful struggle in order to get our food. And this is a pain that still remains today. I told you this was going to be a sad sermon, at least at the beginning. And because of original sin, work also became not only painful, but frustrating, the passage tells us. Look at verse 18. God said, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The ground would begin producing thorns and thistles. The idea is that in God's original created order, the thorns and thistles, these things that hurt the cultivation of the soil or the farming or the production of fruit, they didn't exist. But now, because of the fall, with sin came the frustration of these thorns and thistles. And I think that these thorns and thistles are meant to point to a larger reality. It's not just that thorns and thistles begin to exist, but that any task that we set out to accomplish, it is beset with some frustration and some failure. Just as real thorns and thistles are a frustrating experience for a farmer, So proverbial thorns and thistles hinder every work experience. Even when we do everything right in our job or in our workplace, our work is subject to these outside frustrating factors. Even when you're satisfied with the quality of your work and what you've produced, you won't always be satisfied with the results that you get from your work. Let's imagine this play out in maybe a local setting that we could understand or relate to. We we are near the Monterey Peninsula here, of course. And there's a lot of, this is a golf mecca. A lot of people come here to golf. Let's just imagine uh, some business men and women decide, hey, we're going to launch a brand new private golf club. It's going to be world class. We're going to attract some incredible uh, members, now this is gonna be the hot place to be. So they, they get a beautiful piece of land, they hire an amazing uh, golf architect who designs an incredible course, they build that course, They decide to build state-of-the-art facilities. So they build this beautiful clubhouse and structure. And then they get out uh, an incredible CEO who's run other clubs like this and a great head professional uh, golf pro who's able to really kind of, uh, you know, create a beautiful atmosphere for the members. And they build this incredible staff. And pretty soon the memberships just start rolling in. And it's like, man, we're succeeding. This is going well. It's all going according to plan, and then just imagine one or two or three bullheaded, opinionated members getting onto the board of directors. And they begin ridiculing or critiquing every little thing. They want every little report to be brought to them. And pretty soon, these talented Staff begin I mean, discouraged, and they say, man, I could do better than this. This is not the place I want to be. And they eventually leave, and they have a hard time getting new talent. And as time goes by, pretty soon this thing that began with the best of intentions is driven down into ruin because why? Well, original sin creates frustration in the workplace. I mean, I don't know if you heard about CNN+. Plus. Uh, You know, this was the streaming service, standalone streaming subscription service of CNN. They had little shows and stuff that they were going to broadcast. They spent $300 million to get this thing launched, and it lasted less than 30 days before they canceled it. I mean, I know some of you guys don't like CNN and all that kind of stuff, so you're, like, kind of happy about it. But that's a terrible thing to have to go through, isn't it? you know, to spend all that work, all that effort, all that money, and then for nothing, to just fail. These are the thorns and thistles that are sometimes attached to our work. Remember Nehemiah? You know, we just studied his whole book. We saw this great man. He was an incredible leader. We didn't really think about it from the angle of the kind of leader that he was. We thought about it from God's angle, what God was doing, but he was using an incredible leader in that book. And Nehemiah, he single-handedly he got the people to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the gates, he did an amazing thing, but it seemed that Nehemiah could never really, fully, completely get through to change the people. You know, they'd have little moments of revival, but he could really never fully and totally get through to see them have real, true, lasting change. I'm sure that discouraged Nehemiah. Now from the outside looking in, if we were talking to Nehemiah, we would all look at him and say, hey, it's not your fault. We read the book, we saw what you were doing, what they were doing, it's all their fault, it's not your fault. But can you imagine being in Nehemiah's shoes? You'd begin feeling that futility, that frustration. What am I doing wrong? What's happening here? What what am I missing that I'm not seeing the full success that I want to see? Well, the reality is just that there are thorns and thistles in the work of our hands. But not only does original sin cause work to be painful and frustrating, it also can give it a measure of futility. It can make our work feel like a futile endeavor. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 19. God said, by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. How long, in other words, will it be like this? How long will our work be like this? How long will we be struggling, toiling, sweating in order to get food from the ground? God says, well, you came from the dirt, and you're going to be working against the dirt until the dirt itself consumes you. Until the very ground that rebels against you consumes your body, until you're buried in and decomposed back into that ground, until you die, you're going to be doing this. I mean, it's just not an encouraging word, is it? It's not the kind of word that you put inside of a little card for your Christian friend to encourage them. <laughs> and this statement, it speaks of the futility or the perceived futility of life. Day after day, year after year, grinding away to scratch out a living. And then we die, returning to the dust. King Solomon, when he put on his philosopher hat and wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he thought about this. He'd worked with his hands. His conclusion, he said, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What what comes Of all his education and work and energy and effort, what happens? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I should say that work, we have to remember, is not part of the curse. God did not introduce work in this passage. It's that work changed as a result of the curse. Because of the fall, we now fight to provide. But we also fight, I think, to keep the main thing as the main things. You know, you think about all the progress that we've made in our recent centuries. So much of our progress is in the physical or in the intellectual realm. We know more than we knew in previous eras, and we have more technology and comforts and health advancements than we had in previous eras. We can expect to live longer than we lived in previous eras. But we haven't made the same types of announcement uh, uh, of progress when it comes in the air, to the areas of our social health or our mental health or our spiritual health. And sometimes these very important areas of our lives, where can we even find the time to make those the focus of our lives? When work chews up and takes up so much of our energy, And time and space. Many of us want to seek the Lord more than we do, but there's work. Many of us want to be in healthier relationships than we are, but there's work. Many of us desire to have better emotional health and bandwidth, but there's work. So often it's work that creates this frustration and futility within. And then, Sometimes work can feel even more futile when we consider the disparity that's present in the rewards for various forms of work. Surgeons and the U.S. president earning far less than movie stars and athletes. And we can figure out the why, the way our economy works, we can figure out the why of that, but that doesn't mean that we're happy about it or that we think this is, this is the way that things are supposed to be. No, there's a futility, along with a very real sense, like Solomon said, that there's no point. Without God involved, what reason and purpose do we have to work like we do? All all this to say, work is hard because of original sin. Here's the second thing I wanna say about this, and this is still bad before it gets good, but work is also hard because of personal sin. You know, it's not all Adam's fault, I could say it like this. Point one, why is work hard? Because of Adam. Point two, why is work hard? Because of me. Or or because of you. (laughs) You Work is challenging because of what we bring to our work. If original sin altered work's landscape, individual sin began populating earth's landscape. So how did it do this? Well, let's consider two ways. There's lots of ways that personal sin affects our work or our work environment. Uh, but one way is through sloth. Okay, the slothful person believes that their work does not matter. When you think of sloth that way, that the slothful person thinks my work doesn't matter, then what you have there is a mentality that helps you understand even if somebody's working hard, even if somebody's taking care of their tasks or responsibilities, it's a mentality. They think, I'm doing all this, but it really doesn't matter. When in actuality, it matters greatly. It's it's significant in the sight and in the eyes of God. But the slothful person says, my work doesn't matter, and they begin to treat it that way. Now, the Proverbs are uh, incredible sources of wisdom for us when it comes to the way that, that we work. And the Proverbs talk a lot about sloth They talk a lot about this person that is slothful that that the Proverbs call the sluggard. And I wanna read to you a few verses from Proverbs today to consider this sluggard or slothful perspective. The first one comes from Proverbs 10, verse 26. Look at this, he says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Okay, this first proverb is not very hard to understand. It's very simple. What it means is that the sluggard is, in, is annoying to his employers. That's what it means. Nobody enjoys, I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there I love the taste of vinegar, but the idea is smoke in the eyes or drinking vinegar. These are not delightful experiences. They are irritating experiences. And the sluggard creates that irritation to their employers because of the way that they're doing their work. Now, as believers, we gotta recognize that we're capable of this sin, aren't we? We're capable of being a sluggard or the sin of sloth. So what we should want or crave, desire for Jesus to do in us is the opposite of this. We should want our employers to feel that it is a delight to work with us. The opposite experience. Okay, another proverb I wanna point out to you is Proverbs 20, verse four. And actually this morning at our Jesus Famous podcast, I released a little mini teaching all about this verse. But it says, Proverbs 20, verse four, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Okay, what this second Proverbs means is that the sluggard will not, do the hard preparatory work required to experience an impact later on, but they want the impact later on. Nobody doesn't want a harvest. Everybody wants a harvest, but the slugger doesn't want to do the hard things you have to do in advance in order to get that harvest. So as believers, we should say, no, I want the nature of Christ to be present in me so that I will work hard in advance so that the long-term fruit can come. So this would help us say, I'm gonna get my education, I'm gonna make a plan and stick to it, I'm gonna prepare, I'm gonna put in the work just like Jesus did and enjoy the harvest when it's time. All right, one last little cluster of Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verse 13 to 16, let's read these together. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. All right, this cluster of statements about the sluggard is full of uh, incredible truth. The first one, Helps us see that the sluggard is the kind of person who makes all kinds of excuses for why they can't get the job done. The sluggard is very creative in his excuse making. He's like, there's the chance that there's a lion outside. Haven't seen one. They don't even live around here. But who knows? It could happen. And so that's his excuse. I'm not going outside because there's a lion in the streets. All kinds of excuses. It also means that the sluggard loves ease way too much. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. It also means that the simplest, smallest tasks, he doesn't wanna do them. He's fatigued even bringing his hand back to his mouth when eating. And it also means that the sluggard has an exalted view of his own opinion on things. He thinks he's wiser than seven others who have answered sensibly. All right, so as Christians, we wanna be the exact opposite, right? We live in a time and in a place where being a sluggard is very possible. So we want the opposite of that. We don't wanna make excuses for ourselves like the sluggard, but we want to do hard things. We don't wanna lounge around and let life pass us by, but we wanna get up and engage in Jesus's plans for us. We don't want to despise the small or the menial tasks, but instead allow Jesus who did the small and served the menial to influence our hearts. And as believers, we don't think that we have all the answers, but that we know the God who does, and so we turn to him. So there's sloth, but on the other side of sloth, let's think of another way that personal sin hurts our work. It's through pride. If the slothful person says, my work doesn't matter, the prideful person says, my work really matters. All right, they, they put too much on their work. And this pride shows up in a number of ways. Some people use their work, for instance, as a way to feel secure about life. They use their work as a, as a way to say, you know, I, I need provision, I need security, And God is not the one who gives me my security, it's my work. It's what I'm doing with my own hands. But James gives us a perspective about that. He says, hey, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to buy and sell and do this or that, you shouldn't say it that way. You should say instead, if the Lord wills, then today or tomorrow we will buy and sell and do this or that. You should have the acknowledgement that in the midst of your business, you don't know what tomorrow holds and that God is the one who is providing for you. But for many people, we use our work as a way to feel secure, and this is pride. Our work can also foster pride in us when we use it as a way to enjoy power or status of some kind over other people. You don't have to be the CEO of some big company in order to feel this power trip or this status over other people. Even a small-time office administrator who is kind of operating like a gatekeeper to other people can kind of go on that power trip kind of uh, mode. And so we've got to watch out for that form of pride. And our work can also foster pride in us when we use it as a form of identity when we say this is who I am. I, this is the career that I have, therefore this is who I am. God said we should have no other gods before him and work and career can become a God that we use to tell us who we are. Talking with Riley about this, Pastor Riley about this the other day on our Jesus Famous podcast, we've been kind of, on Mondays, we record a little episode where we just kind of recap the Sunday teaching, and he asked me questions about it, and we kind of dive deeper into the content or the subject at hand, and he was asking me about this temptation to make your work uh, your identity. And I was just telling him that I have one of those jobs that it's real easy to do that. You know, you can almost kind of justify yourself, like it's a holy thing, it's a righteous thing, I'm a pastor, but the reality is, that's not the first part of who I am, I'm a child of God, I belong to him. And our identity has to be found first in who we are before him and not in what we do. All right, all of this sounds really bad, really bleak, Original sin made work hard. Personal sin made work hard. We just looked at two personal sins, but you could think of probably about another 20 personal sins that make work harder than it has to be. But this leads me to my final point. Work is hard because of original sin. Work is hard because of personal sin. But here's the good news. Jesus can help us. Jesus can help us. What do I mean by that? Well, what was the cross all about? why did Jesus come? Jesus came to deal with sin. Even embedded in the curse itself that we read here in Genesis 3, verse 17 and 19, if you back up to Genesis 3, verse 15, when God spoke to the serpent and then spoke to the woman God alluded to, the day that would come, where someone who was a descendant, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. When Jesus came, he came to deal with sin. Now, we're still waiting for that moment where all of the effects of the curse are overturned, amen. We're still living in a fallen and broken world. But even as Christians today, the effect of the fall is lessened because of the gospel and what Jesus has done in our lives. For instance, through Christ our work receives purpose. For all its brokenness and all of its flaws, our work begins to receive purpose because of Jesus. What was love supposed to, what was work supposed to be at the very beginning? It was supposed to be a love response to God who made humanity. Thank you God. I want to Respond to who you are and what you've given to me by working for you. We lost that because of the fall, but we regain that through Jesus. Colossians 3 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This helps us understand that there's now purpose in our work. To work with the aim of pleasing Christ helps us do. I think a better job of choosing satisfying work. A lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves to choose the perfect career path, the perfect kind of work. And we live in a time where we don't typically or have to do whatever our parents did like other generations had to do. We have choices when it comes to our work. And so we get involved in a certain line of education or a certain line of work, and when it doesn't work out, we think, well, there's gotta be another option right around the corner. Everything I've said up to this point, by the way, should help you persevere and have a mentality that, all right, thorns and thistles are coming no matter what kind of work I do. There is no flawless kind of work experience because of the fall. But now, because of Jesus, what we learn is that anything that we do can be done for and in his name. And he can help us with this. He can do this in us because he is the one who redeems our work. So let's think about how this fleshes out in our lives. In Christ, we're free as Christians to please Jesus with any work that he has gifted us to do. You don't have to sit around and wait for a certain kind of job. You can just, in the work that you have today, please Christ with it. In Christ, we are free from the pressure to attain our status or our identity from work. You know some kids growing up in families where there's this pressure. You gotta be this kind of person. You gotta do that kind of work. And if you do anything less than that, you are less than. But In Christ, we're set free from that pressure. We can choose work that he would be pleased with and satisfy him. In Christ, we become servants of humanity. We're here to serve people, which helps us embrace work that benefits others. In Christ, our true satisfaction comes from our relationship with God. So this helps us kind of do anything because we're not looking to any work any career or any job to complete us or to satisfy us because our satisfaction comes from God. In Christ, we know that one day Jesus is coming to renew all things. So we're released from the pressure to create a perfect society through the way that we work. You, You know this kind of mentality, right? You've heard it before. Like, let's Change the world is kind of a constant theme in our modern time. That's a lot of pressure, don't you think, for the work that you're going to choose? But in Christ Jesus, we know that Jesus, one day, he wants to use our lives today, but we're one of like billions. One day, Jesus is going to come, and guess what he's going to do? Jesus is going to change the world. Quite literally, he will change this place. So it releases us of that pressure. But another way that Jesus can help you in your work is by giving you perseverance. Everything that we've learned today should help with that. Just the fact that you know that tomorrow morning when you go to work, if you go to work, you're gonna experience thorns and thistles and futility and pain, just knowing that. A lot of people don't know that and they're caught off guard by it, but just knowing that that's a fact of the way the world is today can help you persevere. But also, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The Holy Spirit wants to strengthen you. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians 5, are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those would make your work and your workplace better experiences. So the Spirit can help you. You think when somebody comes around the corner, you're making a photocopy, and that super annoying person comes around the corner, and they've got like some terrible joke, some terrible comment that they give to you. You think that the Holy Spirit doesn't want to help you in that moment? He does. He wants to help you be kind. He wants to help you process that. He wants to keep you back from saying something nasty in return. There's a lot of things the Spirit's trying to do as he helps us with our interactions every day. And the perseverance that Jesus gives can help us endure today because we have hope for tomorrow. We believe as Christians that a day is coming where everything that I've talked about today will be ultimately reversed because of Jesus. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter eight. He said that the creation in Genesis three, it was subjected to futility, we talked about that, but not willingly. It's not like creation entered into sin. It was Adam that entered into sin. Creation entered into futility unwillingly because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage one day, its bondage to corruption, and obtain the same freedom of the glory that the children of God have. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And brothers and sisters, it's Jesus who makes that thing that we're waiting for, hoping in, possible. And I don't know if you notice this, but everything in our passage today points to him. It, it hints at him. There's death in this passage. There's toil in this passage. There's sweat in this passage, thorns in this passage, a tree in this passage, temptation in this passage. And all of it can be traced to Jesus. He's better than Adam who failed in this passage. He succeeded and became the second Adam, the Bible says. He died, there's death in this passage. Jesus died so that we could live. He toiled on our behalf. He sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He wore a crown of thorns when he went to the cross as if to say, I'm bearing the curse for you. And he endured temptation in the wilderness and succeeded in saying no to the temptation. And he ultimately died, not on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of the cross. But Jesus rose from the grave and makes the way for us to escape all this brokenness and decay forever. The offspring of Eve has arrived to crush Satan under his feet. And one day, work will no longer be hard like it is now because Christ will have completely reversed the curse. So let's be a people who persevere until that day. Thank you for listening.